interesting. Diana, thank you very much for joining us on Scotonomics. Uh, we're really keen to hear all about the empowering role of local currencies. So would you like to give us a, an overview of what a local currency is and how it's being used currently in the UK? I mean, I think uh, yeah, it's very tempting to just say local currency is one thing. Uh, and I would start off by saying it's not one thing. Every, every local currency is slightly different. Um, so let's think about some of the key you know, when you're designing a currency, what are some of the key ideas that you might want to think about? And one is whether or not this currency is backed by fiat, you know, in our case, by sterling. Um, and a lot of people would say there's no point in setting up a currency, which is basically just the fiat currency, but with some labels and rules, which is in effect what Bristol Pound was because they would argue that one of the main reasons for starting a local currency is uh, at a time of recession or depression where perhaps liquidity is very low. So people can't get at money, people can't borrow money from the banks. And there have been many um, very successful currencies like the Virgil uh, back in the 1930s and like the, the Palmas Bank uh, in Brazil in the 2000s where um, a non-backed currency, basically a load of IOU notes, if you like, uh, but printed and, and designed, enable people to trade with each other, even though they can't get their hands on real money. That, that's one sort of currency. And in that same uh, sort of currency, your listeners may have heard of LETS, local economy trading schemes or systems, where, um, again, it's like IOUs, but usually among community members where like a babysitting circle, or maybe I borrow your drill and you give me, um, um, sorry, I give you um, a let's token or voucher, um, and you can then spend that on to, to, I don't know, get a friend to help you put up some shelves. Or Those are one sort of currency, if you like. Another sort of currency is the sterling-backed sort or fiat-backed, which is what Bristol Pound was. And the idea there was not primarily about increasing liquidity. It was about changing the rules of the game. It was about trying to encourage people to shop locally. And the reason that matters um, is that when you go to one of the big supermarkets, okay, a little bit of your money stays in the locality. It's paying probably minimum wage or not much more to the people stacking the shelves and the cashier and so on. But most of the rest of that money just leaves the locality straight away to head office, to um, globalized supply chains. Um, and as a result, it doesn't have, you know, the money doesn't have sticking power in the local economy. It's not really helping the local economy to thrive. So the idea of currencies like the Bristol pound was very much to encourage that money to stick to the city. It could only be spent in independent local businesses who would then spend it on with other local independent businesses in their supply chain. Uh, and as a result, that money stays in the city where it's helping those businesses to thrive and in turn create more jobs and um, more opportunities for people locally. So that, that, was, that was that idea. And that very much came out of the transition town movement, you know, which was about localization, uh, resilience, um, partly from, from a point of view of minimizing supply chain, you know, food miles or whatever, you know, that, that kind of uh, transportation 
um, element, but also, as I say, this wider economic resilience and uh, creating more opportunity in the locality. So do you think, Diana, that um, Bristol in particular is ripe for this type of scheme? You know, what is it about Bristol that, um, that this kind of scheme is, is coming about? I think Bristol has a reputation for being somewhere that is uh, focused on social and environmental issues and that is innovative in its approach to things. Um, and I'm sure that's why um, the Bristol Pound started in Bristol. Um, I mean, obviously there, are other, there were other local currencies before in Lewis and Totnes. They were bound to be very limited just because the size of those towns. Um, and, and I guess uh, one of the ideas about doing this in a city the size of Bristol was that it was large enough that you could have um, a diverse set of businesses and really create an ecosystem, if you like, of businesses that could trade with each other, that you would get that kind of circularity um, because there would be enough, uh, enough variety of businesses to, to make it into a, yeah, its own ecosystem. If it was the perfect place, then maybe we could have made it work long term. We, we couldn't make it work long term. We never quite got to the uh, scale of growth um, or the scale of operation um, where, where it could operate itself as a viable operation. Um, and as a result, you know, we've closed down that, um, that experiment, if you like, and now we're thinking about what next. And we do think there is a case for what's next, because last time I looked, our economy was still causing uh, environmental degradation and social injustice. Uh, and, uh, and so there is still a need to experiment in this area. But we didn't find the perfect thing with the Bristol Pound and or it wasn't the exact right place to do it. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, what what I would hate to see what went wrong because with any experiment, the whole point of doing an experiment is to see what happens. So you can never really fail when you do an experiment. But why wasn't there perhaps a level of success that you were expecting? Um, I mean, we started growing, you know, really, really well, and everyone's like, "Yeah, brilliant!" In five years' time, we're going to have you know a hundred thousand people on this system, and everyone's going to be shopping locally. So yeah, the question is why why did we get this far and then plateau off and then start to go downhill? And I think that's a lot to do with brand and marketing. And I don't think it's just local currencies that suffer from this. I think this is a general problem with green movements and social movements where you start off thinking, right, you know, we've got to clearly explain what it is we're doing. For us, clearly explaining why we were doing this was a lot of economic stuff with long words like the local multiplier effect. You know, it's, it's not a particularly easy thing to explain, but if you try and put it on the tin, this is what we're doing, the people that understand that, you know, the low hanging fruit, if you like, the people that are easy to gather uh, into your movement will come along and join it and say, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm in with that one. However, um, beyond those people that have already seen the light, um, if you like, it's it's very hard to to make that um, to make that case, especially if your tone of voice is a bit. Uh, you know, obviously, it's really important, and you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be shopping at Tesco's, and you know, frankly, that's just doing damage to our economy. It's like, well, hang on, hang on. Uh, you know, I in my 
area, there is a Tesco's, there's not a load of independent shops. And uh, you know, why should I be being, you know, have, you know <laughs> having your finger wagged at me for, for just, you know, and I'm, my job is at Tesco's. You know, I, I do stack the shelves there. I'm very grateful to Tesco's. They're, they're a nice employer, maybe. You know, there's all these other things. And we were, we were in effect, um, it made us seem a bit elitist. One, you had to have time and money to be able to go to the independent shops and probably pay a premium price for a premium product. You know, I could get my sliced white for, for 50p from Tesco's or I could get a, um, you know, um, an ancient grains organic spelt something or other for, for 10 times that. You know, it's it's it, that's the kind of problem we were working with. So So one, there was this, yeah, kind of slightly angry or slightly condescending tone of voice perhaps and then as well there was a kind of exclusionary thing around making it difficult for people um, mm. because they would have to travel more and go to several shops and pay a premium so that was that was one problem on, in terms of getting the people on board then for the businesses and what we had said to the businesses near the in the beginning was hey we're going to get all of these people on board they're all going to be coming to local shops and your profits will go up well, those 2,000 people that we got on board, um, they were already people that were shopping at those local shops because they were people that already agreed with what we were doing. And therefore, on the whole, those businesses didn't see a huge uptick in, in you know, footfall and money, money in the till. Um, and therefore, after a while, they started to say, hang on, you know, the costs of us for processing, you know, having another another payment method, training up the staff, having to reconcile another bank account, having to try and integrate with our systems. You know, th this is just an extra headache we don't need. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we thought we were helping people and helping businesses. In the end, we were actually creating some headaches for the very businesses we were trying to help. So I, th I think that would be my nutshell. There were also other problems around tech uh, in, and also around the regulatory framework options that existed back in 2010 when we were developing the original Bristol Pound scheme. You know, it was before Electronic Money Institute regulations had been developed, which made us very, um, very dependent on having another regulated back-end partner. We chose the local credit union because they were very aligned to us in terms of their social mission. Um, but it meant that overall our tech stack, if you like, was was quite glitchy, costly and difficult to maintain. And it also meant we didn't have any access to our own data because the credit union owned that transaction data. So if I wanted to find out, oh, I wonder which businesses are maybe not spending the money they're getting in through the till within the network, I couldn't find that out. I wasn't allowed to know. Equally, I couldn't say, hey, look at our business of the month. Look at how much trade they've done in Bristol Pounds. I, I couldn't do that because I wasn't allowed to see the data. So yeah, I, th I think that's most of the problems. The, the tone of boy, the voice, I'd like to pick up on that because I, I just recently read some research about the transition town movement and I think from, tw um, from 2010 when you were doing the Bristol Pound, I think 84% of the people involved in the movement were white, middle class and had, had a university background, you know, and that's not reflective of, of, of the town or of society and I think that is really important and I think the green movement can come across as quite... Uh, as quite moralistic and and quite um and quite paternal and maternal and telling people what to do. So I think that's really important that you've looked to address that. The, the second point and, and one that I really wanted to pick up on was 
part of the failure you said was that, um, if I could paraphrase it, there was really a misunderstanding about uh, what a currency actually is and what a currency does. Do you think that translates right across to a misunderstanding of how the how sterling is used and what sterling is and how the government spends and earns money? And do you think if people understand that a lot better, they would actually see how a, a supportive uh, local currency could play its role within an economy? Yeah, I mean, uh, let, let's broaden it out to money. Um, we all have, we're all brought up with an understanding of money from from very early years. You know, we we tend to socialise our children with pocket money, which they learn to spend. They are starting to um, have ways of thinking about money um, to do with how much money they've got in their piggy bank, uh, how much they're getting for their money. You know, these sweeties um, more expensive or cheaper than these sweeties, and and uh, why would you waste money? on something that, that you know, when you could get a cheaper thing, you know, I think a lot of us grow up with these kinds of attitudes. Um, and the problem with money is that it's its own little system that is completely, you know, here's the big world, uh, if you like, and, and the people, and then money is this kind of thing sort of separate from it. All of those other real world impacts on people and on the planet are completely externalized to the money. And when when we look at, you know, when we're driven as a country by GDP, or when we're driven individually or as businesses by how much money we've got in the bank or our balance sheet or our profit and loss, you know, these are encouraging us to look at everything as a transaction in which we are seeking gain, uh, financial gain. It's looking at one form of capital, financial capital, rather than social capital and environmental capital. So I think I think there is I think at some point we have to address this. We have to explain to people that money is very one dimensional and it doesn't tell the whole story. And I think a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, we can put taxes in place or you know polluter pays type stuff and and penalize the companies that are doing the most damage. There's a problem with that in that they will just up all their prices to maintain their profits and their return to shareholders. And then everybody ends up pay, paying a price for the companies that are not pulling their weight. So I, I really have, um, I, I, I do not believe that we can fix our current problems just by focusing on our current financial driven economic system. Um, and that for me is a big problem. And I guess that's you know, maybe we'll come on to this in a moment, but that's where I'm trying to to play next, if you like, for our next experiment. How do we work with other forms of capital and trying to make things visible so that people aren't just taking decisions based on money, but they're base they're basing their decisions on other things as well. I've been studying with um, a group of people in California called the Metacurrency Project, and they are they're looking at currency as current hyphen C, that the purpose of a currency is to visualize flows. And I think that takes us into a much wider understanding of currency than just money. I think you're talking about money rather than currency. And I think, yes, we can design money in different ways to encourage different sorts of, of market-based um, um, interactions and undoubtedly that work also needs to be done um, and yes it's poorly understood and yes this is perhaps where 
um, regulation and um, and you know taxes or incentives can come in and and try, but I, I just never think they're going to be the whole story. So yes, I can understand governments and local governments thinking about money and about local forms of money or alternative forms of money that that might pull levers in different way. But at the end of the day, all of that is still just focusing on trade, purchasing power, and trying to change people's market behaviors as opposed to you know, a wider understanding of, of their impact um, on people and planet. Yeah, I think you've explained very eloquently uh, some of the problems with having a local currency. This was something that when I was in Transition Town Tayport, we looked at and we were following what was happening both uh, in Lewis and uh, Totnes. And we knew that Bristol was thinking about doing this as well. And from the perspective of trying to keep more money within your local economy and for it not to be leaking out of your local economy is a great goal. But you've explained why really that's quite difficult to manage. I mean, obviously, if you're running, if you're the government and you're running a fiat currency, you have a whole army of people who you're paying in that fiat currency to make that happen. And perhaps you're struggling to get people to make your local currency happen because you can't pay them to do it. They're doing it on a voluntary basis. You are going to start something else now. It's going to be called Bristol Pay. So you want to talk about what that's um, going, what's, what, what's going to be different about that, Diane? Mm, sure. Um, there are two halves, really, to what we are thinking about to come next. Um, one is about real money and the other is about tokens to... to measure or visualize some of these other forms of capital. So I'll start with the money bit because that's the easy bit. And the reason the money bit is needed and is important is um, number one, that's where people are. That's how we onboard the most people we possibly can with a very easy um, onboarding message, if you like. And that onboarding message is use Bristol Pay because it's the only non-profit uh, currency that is raising funds for the voluntary sector in Bristol. So it's, you know, it's helping your local community project. Um, and how will it do that? How will it raise funds? Um, most of the time when we go to a shop and we you know, take our phone or card and tap it on a device or we pay online, um, it goes from my account, which is in any old bank account. Actually, it's it's with Triodos because I, I care a lot about the where my money is stored uh, and and its impact. Uh, and the banks, uh, the, sorry, the the traders or the shops bank account, which might be in a completely different bank account. And then you need a kind of bridge that enables the money to kind of go from my account all the way to their account. Um, and that bridge is provided by a load of third party suppliers. You know, I've got a card issuer from my bank that, that I'm paying for somehow. Uh, the um, this, the um, shop has got you know, maybe an iZettle thing or a well-paid box or whatever, and they're probably paying for that, and they're paying a certain um, percentage on every transaction. And a lot of that money is picked up by Visa and MasterCard, who are operating that bridge, you know, the, the main bit of the bridge between. So it's an open loop system that is inherently costly to provide. And one of the reasons it's costly is because of the amount of fraud in that system, because there's no direct 
contact between these two. So I've just realized that you can't see both my hands at once. That's better. So, yeah, so th th there's no direct link between these accounts on separate systems. With a closed loop system, which is what we're planning on setting up, you know, my account and the shop's account are on the same system. And so there's no need for a third party bridge between the two. It's just a simple free, basically, debit this account, credit that account with no third party costs. So yes, it will take some investment to set it up. But once it's set up, because everyone has an account on the same system, it's basically pretty much free to operate. Um, and as a result, even if we, and to put this into perspective, uh, in a city the size of Bristol, we've, we've done a fair bit of work estimating in different ways how much money is lost in transaction charges to the city every year. And the figure is going up because more and more trade is moving you know, into digital payments. Um, and it's currently around 60 million pounds a year. So let's say we got a fifth of the, of the transactions in Bristol even after we've paid for running the platform, that's potentially 10 million pounds a year of funding that we could be create, that we could be, yeah, creating and channeling or diverting away from Visa, MasterCard and all the rest of it and channeling it into the voluntary sector in Bristol instead. And that's a huge prize. I mean, that, that, that puts existing funding of those organizations, you know, it dwarfs it, frankly, you know, the, the amount of money that the likes of um, the, uh, the Quartet Community Foundation that, that is very much involved in funding that sector in Bristol currently, they don't have that much money to play with. So if we could add 10 million pounds a year to their coffers, that is significant. I've seen the roadmap as well to, to be able to do that. It does sound like it'll add a, a huge amount of value. And importantly, it's not, it's not new money. It's just redistributing money that's already in the system. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's, it speaks into that localization of money, a bit like the original Bristol Pound, but where it's very different from the Bristol Pound is that this is about operating at scale. Tesco, please join Bristol Pay. You know, Sainsbury, Lidl, Aldi, please join Bristol Pay. The more transactions we divert onto our system, the better for Bristol. So, and it starts as well, you know, so the what's in it for the individual is, oh, of course I'd want to do this because I'm helping my local communities. And for traders and businesses, especially big businesses, it's like, okay, now we can prove to the council that we're doing something with social value. Um, and so it's, it's good for their CSR, it's good for their relationship with the local authority. Um, so I think it will be a much easier ask for both businesses and individuals to join mm. up. So that's the onboarding, it's the simple onboarding thing. Once people are onboarded, then we hope they will engage with the other part of the platform, which are tokens to measure some of the other um, forms of capital and the, the impact of other sorts of interaction. The oversight. So I think a lot of people don't understand that um, fiat currency is essentially controlled by them because it's who they put in power, they decide in Parliament, what they're going to spend, they tell the Treasury, the Treasury tells the Bank of England, and the Bank of England credits the accounts. That's as simple, that's exactly how it happens. So that our oversight of our fiat currency is a democratic process. I think a lot of people don't realise it, but it is. And our democratic process in the UK is anemic. So that's why it's um, it, it probably doesn't represent what a lot of people would like. So the oversight of this, how are you organizing that? Okay, so I think this is a really important point. And um, we want the platform to be a, a, a platform co-op. 
so that the the stakeholders of that are the local implementations and yes of course we're you know we're starting with bristol pay but absolutely we're seeing glasgow pay or scotland pay or how you know that's definitely on our roadmap with the overall platform being called let's say city pay i'm not saying that that it will definitely will be a, you know, we may well have a rebrand at some point but let's call it city pay for now um and um so the idea is that is the platform co-op with um probably multiple types of stakeholder um, because there may well be some investors, um, although that will have to be patient capital, not venture capitalists wanting to make a load of money and exit and take us off track. You know, it has to be, this is why we want it to be a cooperative, that the, the core purpose has to be at its heart and the main power has to sit with the local implementations. The local implementations we want to set up as community benefit societies so that it is the people who are the users of that system that have the power. One of the first tokens we're going to be setting up is a voting token. So if you imagine the, the um, okay, let's imagine Scotland pay, individual residents in Scotland have their own account on it, and also organisations can have an account on it. So for example, the Scottish Wildlife Trust might have an account on it. And, um, um, the Scottish Wildlife Trust, if it, if it really wants to feel engaged with the people that are following it, could be giving out voting tokens and creating regular polls on the platform, um, trying to understand you know, what its people think so that it doesn't go down the rabbit hole of we're only representing white middle class people with an educated background, which, is, as you say, is a, a common problem within the green movement. Um, so you know it would enable it to be much more representative of the many people it might follow and to to shift um its its decision making processes internally uh, accordingly so it's trying to encourage a more cooperative or a more user-led approach if you like even amongst non-cooperative organizations on the platform you, with my voting token i can then see how i voted but also importantly see what the final decision was see the kind of oh it was you know 40 20 you know whatever whatever it was and how many people didn't didn't vote at all which is again an important matter you know, if we're not asking questions that, that get people to 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 say what they're thinking uh you know and and we often think oh well people are apathetic but you know it's often because we're not asking the right question or giving the right options as answers so i, I think there's a, a lot to be done around increasing um democratization of not just the voluntary sector so the platform itself will obviously be developed along those lines using those voting tokens but we would love to see the platform used then for citizens assembly type interactions as well um, so that local authorities can be more in touch with their residents and and take their views into account so yeah a voting token is one of our earliest tokens and the whole structure we want to be cooperative in nature. Diana, you mentioned um, credit unions at the start of our chat. Do, do, where do you think they fit into this um, kind of uh, money currency ecosystem? I think they're vital. Uh, I mean, at the moment, uh, thanks to a surveillance capitalist system where everybody is constantly being encouraged to buy more and more stuff that they don't really need to keep up with the Joneses, but or at least that's that's kind of what the what the uh, social media platforms are encouraging us to do. But the reason they're doing it is because the great big companies, you know, if they're going to keep GDP high, they have to produce more stuff and then they have to sell more stuff. And 
and so to sell more stuff basically means especially at a time when frankly you know the cost of living is going up wages uh, i know they say wages are, are going up as well but frankly we are all poorer than we were uh, before the financial crash in real terms or most of us anyway um and uh, and that i think is set to continue um yeah i can't see a, an easy resolution to that so you know so the big companies just want to make more money and the only way they can do that is by forcing us into debt um given that uh constant pull of debt and the power of payday loan providers and and you know i think this is and, and credit cards you know the amount of money being made through interest um you know, through poor people who can't being encouraged to buy things they can't afford just to keep UK PLC going and provide returns for shareholders. You know, I find this insidious and, and dreadful. And so for me, credit unions are very important because whilst we are in this debt ridden um, culture, which, you know, until we have perhaps some truly progressive economic systems like a real universal basic income uh, set at a level that meets people's needs. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, we're going to continue to struggle with debt. And so the role of credit unions in providing a fair, um, a fairer approach to managing debt. Um, yeah, that's vital. That's vital. How do we instead get people to think, oh, no, spending a load of money is a bad thing, not just because it makes me poorer but all, or, or puts me in hock to people, but also because, you know, fast fashion, uh, buying clothes, throwing away and replacing them the, the whole time is inherently bad for the environment. Uh, buying a power drill so I can put up some shelves and then putting it in the attic and it never being used. And then when I get it out, put up some more shelves three years later, you know, it doesn't work anymore because it's, it's sort of rusted up in some way. Um, how I think the average life expectancy of the, the use expectancy of a drill is 13 minutes. Right. You know, isn't that, isn't that absolutely crazy that you would spend that that amount of money on something so, that's 13 minutes, but it's, it's that circular economy idea, isn't it? Exactly. So one of the, one of the other, so I've talked about voting tokens. I haven't really talked about some of the other token schemes that we would like. So one of them is a kind of, um, an item reuse token, if you like, which, um, with with this idea, obviously it wouldn't work with a drill that only lasts 13 minutes, but with, with a well-made drill that is going to last longer than that, or a sewing machine, or maybe a fancy dress that you know, you'd wear to a wedding and then not wear for a long time. These sorts of things you could create a token for. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of, of NFTs these days being used to, to buy and sell kind of um, works of, of digital art. Um, well, in a similar way, you could use an NFT to link to a real world item. And as it is passed on from person to person or shared um, and used by different people, um, we could be increasing the value of that token sort of as a you know, clocking up counter so that we can um, start to tell some good news stories about um, the prevalence and importance of reusing the gifting economy, the sharing economy, um, to to um, to maximise the use the use of each manufactured product because every manufactured product has a negative um, environmental impact. You know, it, it uses resources from the earth. It uses power, which is probably fossil power, um, to, in its manufacture and distribution. Uh, and then once we've stopped using it and it goes in the bin, 
uh, it is actually creating a, a potentially a chemical waste, a, a physical waste, a, you know, all kinds of problems that we then have. We're, and we're not good enough at maximizing the, the use of everything. So it's, you know, how do we encourage that way of thinking? And we think there's a token in there. We think there's also a token in uh, the modal shift in transport. <clears throat> you know, we all need to get out of our cars and use um, buses. Yeah, exactly. As, as yeah, exactly. Public wealth as opposed to private wealth. This is what we need to be thinking about in the future. Yes, um, but it's also so we can we can in Bristol. You know, we've been building loads of cycle lanes recently, and that's so great. Strand, that's strand started in Bristol. But but uh, we can build as build as many bike lanes as we like. But if most business executives are still thinking. Uh, well, you know, it's not very cool to show up sweaty after a bike ride. Uh, I, you know, I think it's better if I show up in a BMW because, you know, that way I look, I look the part, people trust my advice and I look successful. You know, those, we have to change those ways of thinking, those public perceptions. So that, hey, no, it's cool and fine, even if you're a high level executive to show up slightly sweaty on a bike. And that's the expected norm. So the tokens are very much about trying to count and celebrate and create new societal norms from the data around positive um, behavior choices, if you like. How do we change people's views of themselves, but also society's views? That this is, comes from a model of behavior, behavior understanding called the ISM model, individual, social, and material, which says that you know, this kind of nudge economics, oh, well, if we provide the information and make it a bit cheaper for people to do the right thing, they'll just do the right thing. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen. Um, it, it does in some areas, but it doesn't happen in lots of areas. You know, my, my fictitious business executive, you know, is already paying through the nose in fuel tax and road tax. Um, and this you know, the slight change in taxes in the future would not be the thing that makes them say, OK, now I'll go on the bus um, or I'll jump on my bike. It's a, it's far more about those wider cultural beliefs and norms, and that's the the level at which we need to work to make information available and to create different ways of seeing the world. Because at the moment we only see things, you know, the only things that are really visible are money, and uh, you know that's the that's the biggest problem from my perspective. Yeah, that, that's the idea of leverage points, isn't it? You know, trying to find something that actually significantly makes a difference um, to, to the way that the economy is shaped. Well, well, you've given us a really good journey. It's been really interesting seeing, you know, the idea at the transition town in 2010, and then that um, experiment and where that's learned and where that's taken you and what you've learned from it and landing on this kind of very tech-centered very different approach to hopefully have the same ideas. A fascinating journey. I'm sure loads of people can can learn a lot from you on that. I think you've explained that really well. I, I wish you every success because I think your aims are fantastic. And I think, yeah, through that experiment with the Bristol Pound, going to Bristol Pay or Scott Pay um, or Grampian Pay, where I am, sounds like a great idea. It's, it seems like a really good way to keep wealth within your local economy.